Since this is the first opportunity that I've had to do so, I want to express my appreciation. There are so many people that I could not begin to single everyone out by name for all of those who have been so kind to assist during the time that I've been sick. I'm trying to work at about a half speed right now, but I'm very, very grateful to the members of our session who have always looked after me very carefully and uh, also to the members of our Board of Deacons who have assumed their responsibilities in trying to help out in the church too. And then the people in the church office, Terry Tagarini and uh, uh, Carlisle Hoyt and others who assist there. I thank all of you for the cards which I've received and for the encouragement uh, of the kindness that you have shown to me. And I'm glad to, to, to try to be back. Uh, you know, today I'm going to be preaching about Moses and whenever I preach about Moses, I always think about uh, uh, a trip that I had one time on an airplane all the way out to India with Dr. Billy Graham and with uh, one of his assistants whose name was Jerry Bevan. And uh, Jerry was kind of the Hollywood type anyway, and so Billy had designated him to go out to Hollywood when the premiere showing of the Ten Commandments by Cecil B. DeMille uh, was uh, being shown. For those of you who are not into the movie industry, and I'm not, although I got movies on my mind this morning, uh, 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 Mr. DeMille, of course, was a tremendous director. And uh, the, probably the greatest of his films was that Ten Commandments film with Charleston Heston. Well, it cost millions and millions of dollars to produce the film. And Jerry told me that he was present at the dinner that they had when the film is finally completed and then all of the uh, things that transpire during the filming of it are told about and the successes and the failures and what they went through. Well, it was a great film and still is, and you've seen reruns of it on TV. And finally, it came time for Mr. DeMille to come to the podium and to address the uh, audience. They were all waiting to hear what he said. And uh, he told of an interesting experience he said that in one particular scene, I think it was the scene in which the Red Sea rolls back and the children of Israel, the uh, children of Israel go across on the dry land and then the Egyptians come back. Well, he, was, he had had all kinds of special effects people drawing up plans on how they were to do this for a long, long time. And it cost millions of bucks to, to put it out and they had to hire thousands and thousands of extras and Mr. DeMille was a great traffic, traffic cop. He knew how to handle all these crowds. And uh, he had set up three huge cameras uh, to get this in great panoramic view. And uh, so finally the tense moment came and it was uh, uh, action and rolling uh, and so they all started through it all. Well when he finished he took his megaphone and he yelled to the man who had been with him a long time who was a great photographer and he, he called through and said, Bill how did you come out? He had him up on a cliff to the left. And, and uh, he called back to Mr. DeMille and he said, Mr. DeMille, I am sorry. But he said, you're not going to believe this, but my camera was out of focus. And he said, I didn't get a thing. And Cecil B. DeMille said he slumped. And then he thought about uh, his old faithful uh, who had been with him longer than this man whose name was Jim. And he had perched him in a different location and had built a high scaffold for him to be up on and to get everything in a panoramic view too. And so he yelled to him, uh, Jim, how did you come out of it? And uh, Jim yelled back and said, Mr. DeMille, this has never happened to me in working for you for 35 years. 
but I had the, the lens cap on my camera and I forgot to take it off and I didn't get a thing. And DeMille said that his heart sunk as he saw his budget blown and then he thought, there's old Jake. And Jake has been with me ever since I started. And I know Jake got it. And so Jake was up on a cliff at some distance, so it would be the great far off shot. And DeMille had to yell and wave his arm at him. And he yelled, Jake, how did you come out? And he yelled back and said, ready anytime you are, Mr. DeMille. <laughs> and, uh, so that's sort of the way I feel this morning. Uh, now that I want to read to you first from the 12th chapter of Hebrews and then a few verses from the 11th chapter. Therefore, since we have so great a cloud of witnesses surrounding us, let us lay aside every encumbrance, every weight, and the sin which so easily entangles us, and let us run with patience the race that is set before us, fixing our eyes on Jesus the author and the perfecter of faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is set down at the right hand of the throne of God. And then about Moses from uh, chapter 11 of the epistle to the Hebrews, beginning to read at verse 23. By faith Moses, when he was born, was hidden for three months by his parents, because they saw he was a beautiful child and they were not afraid of the king's edict. By faith Moses, when he had grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to suffer affliction with the people of God than to enjoy the pleasures of sin for a season, considering the reproach of Christ as greater riches than all the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking to the reward. By faith he left Egypt, not fearing the wrath of the king, for he endured as seeing him who is invisible. By faith he kept the Passover and the sprinkling of the blood, so that he who destroyed the firstborn might not touch them. By faith they passed through the Red Sea, as though they were passing through dry land, and the Egyptians, when they attempted to do so, were drowned. And now may God add his blessing to our understanding of his word. At about this time of the year, everyone seems to be thinking about football. I went out to the football game the other night and watched the Football hit the crossbar and prayed for it to fall back over the goal line the right way, and it didn't. And uh, I thought about all the people in South Bend, Indiana, who went to Mass this morning, uh, praying because of what happened to Notre Dame yesterday. And uh, uh, football is a great sport. And uh, we look into athletics because we see examples of individual strength that inspire us and because we like to see people work together as a team. And there can be something healthful and useful about it. The writer of the epistle to the Hebrews uh, wants us to know that we are gathered about even like people in a great arena, a huge sporting arena, with thousands of people in the stands surrounding and watching us that right now they're looking down upon Gaither Chapel, an old pastor out in Paris, Texas, 
who in 1944 came to a 14-year-old boy to talk to him about his relationship to the Savior, a Sunday school teacher in heaven who wanted me to learn verses in the Bible and to realize that Jesus did not care uh, about people being rich or poor as far as being acceptable in his sight, that he loved all whom he had created and that he gave them equal access to come to God by him that he forgave their sins and welcomed them, and that I was never so poor that I had to be born in a cattle stall as he was. I think about the great heroes of the faith who have been here in our own midst in Montreat, about Edward Curry and what he did for Jesus Christ, about Nelson Bell and his faith in Jesus Christ, about Brown Hoyt and so many others, and realize that uh, they, in a real sense, uh, while we do not see them with these eyes, we can know that they watch over us. Now then, this epistle to the Hebrews was written to a group of suffering Christians. They were being persecuted from two sides. They were being persecuted because uh, many of them were, Jew they were Jewish Christians, Jews who believed that Jesus is the Messiah, and their Jewish kinspeople who did not accept Jesus as Messiah and hardened their hearts against him were trying to get them to let go of Jesus as Messiah and go back into the old faith, and they would not. And then there were the pagan Romans who hated them because they were Christians, a new sect that was beginning to make inroads into the empire, uh, who would not yield allegiance to that which was evil or wrong, who were socially unacceptable because they would not do the things which uh, were evil. These Christians who lived different lives. And so being buffeted by two sides, the writer of the epistle to the Hebrews has to write in a great many warnings. And then when he comes to chapter 11, he gives a great uh, hall of fame sort of speech to them. He begins to recount, because they are Hebrews, the great heroes of faith in olden times, and he wants them to remember them. And then when he has listed them all, and we'll be looking into some of them for the next few Sundays, uh, he uh, draws that part of his letter to a close, but then in chapter divisions, by the way, were not a part of the originals. Uh, he says, therefore... Since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses watching us, let us lay aside every encumbrance, every sin which so easily entangles us or weights us down, and let us run with patience or endurance the race that is set before us, keeping our eyes fixed upon Jesus. Distractions are dangerous, and they can pull us aside. And so our eyes are to be upon Jesus, who is the author and the finisher of our faith. He is the one who fired the gun, who started us on this race. And he is the one at the finish line when we break the tape. He is the author and the finisher. And, and he wants us to keep our eyes on him because he is the one who perfects our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross despising the shame, and is set down at the right hand of the throne of God. And so he wants these to be inspired. 
and he wants them to see what God wishes them to see and to do. Now then, in the examples that he gives, the one who has especially intrigued me during the reading that I've been doing the last few weeks is Moses. When I think of the incredible sovereignty of God and how he works, here is a man, Moses, that Islam reckons to be a prophet and lawgiver, that all of Israel has to look at, all Israelis, all Jewish people, and that we as Christians reverence for what he is, the prophet and a pace setter for God. But how did he begin? Look back at the very beginning. And this is what he wants to show us, the writer of the epistle to the Hebrews wants to show us about faith. By faith, by faith. And faith is the substance of things hoped for, it's the evidence of things not seen. By faith, Moses, when he was born, and how was he born? He was born into a land of slavery, a land in which the king was so much in hatred of his people, of Moses' people, that he had decided on a path of genocide that every male child was to be killed by the midwives, and that only the females were to be allowed to live, and that after a couple of generations they would all be destroyed. He tried to work them uh, to death uh, by putting them to making bricks, and then bricks without straw, and adding to their misery. He tried to cast them into the Nile River, to see that they were exterminated, much like Adolf Hitler in his insane and demonic fury against the Jews. But God has his plan for his people, and it will not be set aside. And look at the sovereignty of God. Who would have ever thought that that tiny little baby, born in the most abject poverty imaginable, under the cruelest possible circumstances, that he would rise to be next in line to be successor to the whole kingdom of Egypt. Who would have ever dreamed it? Only God could pull off this, and God does it by faith. You see, Moses' father and mother believed that God was able, and so they were not afraid of the king's edict, and they would not destroy their little boy when he was born. They looked at that baby and they reverenced the precious gift of life. And they hid him for three months until he could not be hidden any longer. The Egyptians had a cruel plan. They would often send uh, babies crying through the slave districts because if a baby cries, he sometimes starts another baby to cry. And that's what they wanted to do, to try to track down these little boy babies because the midwives were not putting them to death. They were saying to their, Hebrew task, to their Egyptian taskmasters that the Hebrew women were more active and the babies were born before they got there. And so they were being hidden. They reverenced life, not the damnable abortion stuff that we see today. There was a reverence for human life at its weakest point, and God honored it here. And God honors it through his servant Moses. He was born in the most despicable, despicable circumstances. 
socio and economic reasons would have dictated that he be destroyed, but not so with those who have faith in God and reverence for life. These knew that the God who had created this little baby was God enough to take care of him, and so they committed him to God, and they were not afraid of the king's edict. And by faith, Moses, when he was grown up, you remember the story, it's one of the most beautiful and exciting stories in the Bible, and as a little boy, I can still remember my mother reading it to me. I've thought often about this mother of Moses, how she made a little ark, it's called, a little basket that was made out of reeds. And you know, though she made this basket by faith, does not mean that it was a sloppily made basket. Faith ought to make the very best basket and she made it the best way she could put it together. And she took some type of asphalt or tar and she uh, pitched it. And then she must have lined it with cloth. And when she realized that you could not hide that baby anymore for three months, she put that precious little baby into this little ark, into this little boat, and took him out to the Nile River committed him to God in prayer, and she placed that little basket into the waves, and it was swept down the stream. She knew that down the stream that Pharaoh's daughter, who was childless, would be there through some ritual washings with her servants, and she was watching. And there's an old Hebrew legend that an angel reached down and pinched the baby's toe and made him cry. And what woman can resist the cry of a baby? They, they come awake very quickly. And, and the baby cried. And Pharaoh's daughter heard this little baby cry. And she saw this little basket and she said to some of her uh, attendants, go, go and fetch that basket. And they brought the basket over and she looked down at this little tiny baby with his eyes full of tears and weeping. And her maternal instincts were moved. Oh, what horrors it is when we do not recognize what a gift of God this is. I remember an old philosopher we used to call Socrates, uh, who uh, went down to Davidson College, made a great record, and he lived down here in the Monte Vista Hotel, and uh, John Payne Williams and I used to talk with him all the time. His brother was the man who invented the carbine rifle. And uh, Mr. Williams was a very brilliant man who had read everything and, and he was kind of a recluse who sent uh, off manuscripts and got paid for his writings. And one day I was talking to him about instincts and how strong they were. And uh, he told me, he looked at a little girl and he said, anytime you see a little girl, three or four years old, dragging a little baby doll by the arm, you've seen the strongest instinct in the world. He said, that's it. Well, the maternal instinct in the daughter of Pharaoh came out. And she looked in this little basket and saw this precious little baby. And she reckoned that those little feet and those little hands and that lovely little face and those little eyes were too beautiful to perish. And she wasn't about to see that baby perish. And don't think that faith means that you're dumb. Moses' mother had Moses' sister strategically spotted nearby. Her name was Miriam. And Miriam didn't just happen to be there. 
Presbyterians don't believe in luck. <laughs> That's the worst thing you can say. Whoever's out in Las Vegas, I hope remembers it. We, <laughs> we, uh, Moses, Moses was there. Moses was there, and Moses' sister was there. And Moses' sister quickly pointed out to Pharaoh's daughter, wouldn't it be a good thing if we got one of the Hebrews to be a, a nurse for this baby? And um, Pharaoh's daughter said, that's a great idea. Do you know where we can get one? And Miriam said, I think I know where we can get one. And so she went away like a flash and came back with Moses' mother. And Moses' mother got paid for nursing her own baby. <laughs> and don't tell me that Moses' mother didn't teach this baby about the promise of God and about the patriarch Abraham and about Isaac and about Joseph and how they wound up in that land and how that God had promised that one day a deliverer would come because I'm sure that Moses' mother did all of that. Well, the story is so beautiful. But Moses had to come to a time in life. He lived 40 years in that court, and God was giving him a great education. He was being educated not only in the language of the Hebrews, in the language of the Egyptians, in the Babylonian language, which was the language of diplomats, in the Hittite language, uh, which we would be facing later on when he went into the wilderness. But he was learning something about mathematics. He was learning something about skill. He was learning something about how to deal with people at court. And God was preparing him for what he was going to do later on. Some old preacher has said that God spent 40 years teaching him how to be somebody. And then one day he looked outside and he saw an Egyptian brutally and unjustly beating a Hebrew. And Moses looked both ways and he took a stone and he killed that man because of the injustice. And he buried him in the sand. But then it was found out what he has done. And he had to flee from the wrath of the king. And so he went out into the desert, into Midian, and for 40 years, he stayed in the desert of Midian, looking at a bunch of mangy sheep. Moses was out there. God was teaching him patience. He knew what kind of people he was going to have to be dealing with later on. And so he gave him 40 years out there, working with the sheep working with Jethro's sheep out there. And uh, Moses learned patience. And then one day God's ready. God's ready to call him. He has seasoned him. He'll know where every water hole is in that desert. He'll know a lot about desert life and being a guide of people through the desert. And God will use that experience. And if you're going through some experience right now and it's hard and overbearing and you can't understand why you have to pass through it, just remember that there is no panic in heaven. There are only plans. And that God has some purpose which he is working out. And if you will be patient, God will show you what that purpose will ultimately lead to. Your job is to be faithful to him. 
And so Moses was faithful. And then one day he saw a bush burn, and the bush was not consumed by the fire. And God spoke to him through that bush that was not consumed by the fire. God spoke to him, and Moses said, Who are you? And the voice came, I am, I am. God exists. And then Moses had to face the call that God was going to send him back to Pharaoh's court. And Moses sort of said, here am I, send Aaron. (laughs) He didn't want to go. He said, I can't speak well. And God said, who made your mouth? Who made your mouth? We say, God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, he made your mouth. But I'll get Aaron, and he can go. He speaks well. So he spent 40 years in the desert being nobody, and then he comes back to demand that his people be set free. He spends 40 years learning that God is ruler over everybody and that God will work his purposes of deliverance out when he comes back. And you know the account of the ten plagues that come and how God goes to Pharaoh through his servant Moses and says, let my people go. How God had told him out there in the desert, what's that in your hand? And he held up his old shepherd's staff And God said, throw it on the ground, and he did, and it became a serpent. And God said, pick it up, and it became a stick. And God said, I can use any old stick. I can use you. I don't have any little people, and I don't have any little places. And you take this staff, and with this staff, you'll go back into the king's presence. And you will deliver the people that I have called you to deliver. And so Moses goes back, and he faces Pharaoh. And who would have ever thought of such a plan as God finally devised and revealed to Moses, that it was to be the sprinkling of the blood of a lamb put on the doorpost and the lintel of a house that was to mark the event of the exodus. Now this is to show us that this history is real. This is not a fairy tale, it's an event. And it is going to be a type of the cross. And it's going to be a type of the Lord's Supper, which we will later take, which is an event, not a fairy tale. An event, something that is actual and true. Just as actual and true as the rigors of life are true and the hardships of life are real, but that God is the God of history, and that God can intervene and work out his purpose and deliver his people through an exodus, through an event that takes place. And that event will be celebrated annually until one day the little boy Jesus will rise and say to his father, what do you mean by this service, the Passover? when the angel of death passes over and he will tell them about that bondage in Egypt and the deliverance that came. And Jesus, the author and the finisher of our faith, will be there. And so Moses made his great decision. He made it at what I've called the forks of the road. 
I'll never forget an old country preacher who used to get his hair cut so that it was way up above, like a chili bowl, way up above his ears. He didn't look like Madison Avenue, but he made more sense with what he said. And he said this, the forks of the road is a mighty revealing place. And it is. A poet named Robert Frost tells about going down a road one day and seeing two roads in the autumn and he wishes he could go one way and he wishes he could go the other way, but he has to choose one road. Which road will he choose? Well, Moses chose to suffer affliction with the people of God rather than to enjoy the pleasures of sin for a season. Moses saw the invisible. I cannot see God, but God always sees me. M Moses saw the invisible. He chose the imperishable, the riches of Christ, which will never pass away. And Moses did the impossible. He delivered those people. So later when Jesus is called to go up on the Mount of Transfiguration to discuss his death which should be accomplished at Jerusalem, Moses and Elijah, one of the men we talked about this summer, meet with him. One representing the law and one representing the prophets. They meet with him and he talks to them. And then let me close by telling you a couple of stories that show you that people watch. Last spring I told you how that when I came back through Europe, we wanted to see Frank who was in school. Some lady called today and wanted to know if Frank's preaching. <laughs> uh, uh, if we stopped off there at Cambridge and there was being shown that film Chariots of Fire. And it is now in New York and if you take Time Magazine, uh, you can look in the September 21st issue and read a write-up about it. That's a very good write-up. And it won a lot of awards at the Keynes Festival because it tells about Eric Little, L-I-D-D-E-L-L. -L -L. Eric Little, who won the 1924 Olympics and broke all the records up until that time. And Eric Little, the son of Church of Scotland missionaries to China who came back as just a, a missionary's kid with no money, who had to go down and practice racing where they raced the dogs on a cinder track. And one day a football coach, a rugby coach, saw him and wanted that speed, and he got Eric Little to play for the University of Edinburgh. And when they went to France, he, he starred. And when they came back, a, a trainer got hold of him and started to try to teach him to run, and he ran effectively. And he did something in the triangular uh, event. That's where Ireland, Scotland, and England play and have a running match. And in that track meet between Ireland, Scotland, and England, Eric Little ran. And he did something which I do not think has ever been done since or was ever done before that we know anything about. That's a matter for the record books. Eric Little in that event when the gun was fired and he came out of the pits and started for the race, a man by the name of Gilly who ran for England hit him on the first bin and knocked him off of the cinder track onto the green turf. 
and the film caught this beautifully. Eric Little did not hesitate. When he hit the turf, he bounced back onto the track. They were 20 yards in front of them. And it was only a 440-yard dash. But he came up and caught up with the rest of the runners and breasted the tape and broke it and won that meet. And the Daily Scotsman, the greatest newspaper in Scotland, said that in 35 years of writing track and field events, this is the greatest single individual feat I have ever seen accomplished by any athlete. That's the same athlete who refused to compete on Sunday in Paris in the 1924 Olympics. And when the papers made fun of him because of his religious scruples, somebody figured out that he could run on Thursday and he ran in a race that was not his own because he was a sprinter. They passed out the word that he'd be beat. He'd burn out. But Eric Little didn't burn out. They handed him a little note. Some American runner who admired him. And on the note it said, The Lord says I will honor him who honors me. And Eric Little folded that up. And when the gun was fired, Eric Little burst with a burst of speed that broke the tape and won the 1924 Olympic gold medal and broke all the records in that particular event that had ever been formed up until that time. He went to China as a missionary for Jesus Christ. And he died in a Japanese prisoner of war camp, expending the strength of his own body in trying to take care of his fellow prisoners who were there. He's one of these heroes of the faith who is watching. But how does that stand with you? And where are you today in your relationship with Jesus Christ? Wherefore, seeing we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, have you made any decision or commitment to the Lordship of Christ? Are you willing to take whatever knocks faith may lead you to? If you are, this is what the world out there wishes to God they could see. Not another sickening book on theology. What they ought to see is some theology walking around. Some theology that's living. I talked to a man the other day. I had to see him because of a tragedy that had occurred. And I saw that man's eyes fill up with tears as he told me that he had watched in Haiti one hour's plane ride from Miami. He watched the little black boy who carried out their garbage. And he followed him one day and saw him walk down the road and he hid back at a distance. And he said, I saw him empty out the two garbage bags. And he saw, I saw little children come out of the bushes grabbing for scraps that fell from our table and we thought we were frugal. And I saw a little girl with wide eyes chewing on a chicken bone, so happy that she had that. When the man told me great tears were streaming down his face. But he does not just cry about it. And he does not just preach about it, he's doing something about it. And that's what we need. That's faith in action. And God's watching. And this man told me, he said, one day I'm going to have to give an account to God for what I've got. And one day you're going to have to give an account for God too. Christianity is not a spectator sport. 
but we are a part of it. And God wants us to do our part. And if you've never given your life to him, you can. And then you can study his book and learn his ways and put that faith into action. And that's what this world needs to see. Prayer. Our Father, it's one thing to look at other people make outstanding accomplishments and to read about them. And it's quite another thing to try to look into our own lives and see what we can do. We need a transportation committee in the church to help old people to get to doctors. We need to be thoughtful about people that do not know Jesus Christ who are outside our gates. We need to be thoughtful about people who watch us like a hawk to see if we live our faith or just talking. And so we pray that the Holy Spirit will speak to us and convict us and not give us any peace until our walk matches our talk. Help us to look to Jesus, knowing that if we keep our eyes upon him, he can perfect our faith and he can make us what we ought to be. And now may the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God our Father and the communion and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit, our teacher and our guide, be and abide with us all now and forevermore.